Greetings. Welcome to Haber Bros, a podcast for historic, cross-centered Christians. We seek to provide ancient answers to a culture that's forgotten the questions. Thank you for listening this week. If you like what you're hearing or enjoy the show, please share it with a friend. This is the biggest way that podcasts grow. If you've not yet given us a five-star rating and a positive review on your favorite platform, pause this recording and do so now. I am Kirk Haberman, a father, teacher, and church musician, and this is my brother, Chris, an all-round good dude and a real-life Anglican priest. How are you, sir? I'm great. I'm great, but I'm also a little bit exhausted. Uh, We tried to fit in a a quick getaway beginning of the week, skiing Monday at... uh, at our first time skiing here at um, in the Black Hills in South Dakota, which are both accessible, Kirk, but also many miles away. It's uh, in a, a different time drive, zone, six hour drive from us. Uh, but the, we were able to average literally 81 miles an hour, including stops and, you know, getting on the highway and getting, you know, all Let that the stuff. listener do the math. 81, including stops. Yep means that you, you were know, on the road you were going more than 81 indeed yeah that's the 80 is the speed limit on on <laughs> i9 i90 so yeah if you're gonna that, go that slower helps. than 80 on i90 like west of sioux falls you're not gonna get anywhere anytime soon. kirk everybody everybody should should especially if you're on the east coast and you've never been anywhere outside where there's like a, a lot of nothing everyone right. should drive i-90 in south dakota and just see just how much open space there is it's it's quite stunning so so uh, we skied monday drove back tuesday just in time for uh our our pancake feast yes Kirk, how was your pancake feast oh it was so feastly it was it was so the 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 young men of the parish like the, the, the like tween boys have developed in the last like three or four years, this, this genuinely revolting annual tradition that they look forward to, which is <laughs> the sausage contest, <laughs> the sausage eating contest. And uh, we have a new rector, a new fit, new, new, new rector's family. And uh, their eight-year-old son was told about this on Sunday. And so on, on Tuesday, his mother noticed that he, he hadn't, I, I don't know, how, I don't remember the story fully, but she discovered he hadn't eaten lunch. Like he was grouchy and she said, what's going on? And she, he's like, oh, I haven't eaten lunch. What? Why didn't you eat lunch? Did you not eat lunch at school? He's like, no, no, they had lunch. I'm just not eating. Why? Well, I'm saving up space for the sausage eating contest. <laughs> Eric, you, you must be proud of him. You, very your, proud. your ways have rubbed off on him <laughs> very quickly. What yeah. do you mean? What do you mean? Say more. You you fast if you know there's going to be a big meal. What? Why? Why waste that important space on a on a frivolous preparatory meal when you could uh, devote it to the feast? <laughs> sure. And feast it was. So Kirk, uh, the I, I I cannot remember the last time I ate pancakes. I didn't have them last year, um, but I I generally avoid carbs at least in that form. And holy cow, Kirk, they were fantastic. Was it, was it carb springum? Oh, it certainly was. <laughs> and somebody brought, you know, so obviously everybody should use maple syrup. Mm-hmm. That pancake and waffle syrup should go in the trash, right? <laughs> but somebody found this bourbon barrel aged maple syrup. So, oh I mean, it's, it's, it's maple syrup, but it's aged in bourbon barrels and, and all the complexity of the flavors, subtle enough where it's not, you know, overpowering, but but uh, it just adds to the flavor. Just phenomenal. 
And then, of course, uh, cramming uh, a full work week uh, plus an extra service uh, into Wednesday, Thursday, Friday has me a little bit exhausted. We're recording on on Friday, March 4th. So I'm a little tired today, Kirk. Yeah. Uh, Question, question for you. In your opinion, are pancakes best, A, with blueberries, B, with chocolate chips, or C, none of the above, plain and simple, just like Paul Bunyan intended? Uh, see, I, I'm a Paul Bunyan truther, Kirk. <laughs> I, I think Paul Bunyan ate blueberry pancakes. Oh. I mean, being a good Minnesotan, it's, it's just, it makes sense. Um, I'm agnostic on chocolate chips. Uh, That's fine. Like those are, that's a fine dessert, but like, it's not as good. It's not as good as, (laughs) as blueberries, blueberries, uh, blueberry pancakes, with maple syrup. Cannot beat that. It's unbelievable, but also something for uh, a pre-lent, um, or, you know, Sundays are mini feasts. Kirk, I know you probably don't do, um, you probably continue your Lent, your uh, fast on Sundays, but you are permitted to. Have, um, partake on Sundays. Yes. Dear, yeah. Dear yeah. Um, no, many, um, uh, many Sundays in Lent, I am, I'm, I'm really sorely tempted, sorely tempted to eat. Is that a transition? <laughs> well, I was, I was leaving it there in, in case we wanted to, do you have anything more to say? I think we should get to the gospel. Let's. Today's gospel lesson comes from Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And then when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him. It is said, you shall not put the Lord, your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, Kirk, as we move backwards in Luke, back to Luke 4, we were in Luke 9, I believe, last week. It's important to remember the context here. So, and Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned. This comes immediately after the baptism of our Lord. So uh, it's interesting that uh, immediately after this, this moment of his exaltation, when this voice from heaven, this, this manifestation, this epiphany, this manifestation of Jesus and, and his identity of him being the son of God and beloved by the father, uh, that he's cast into the wilderness, as Mark says. Here it says he was led into the spirit. But uh, e- either way, uh, it's, remember, it's, it's important to remember that this is the Holy Spirit that that brought him here. This wasn't uh, coincidental. We have the number of 40 days, which is a hugely significant number in the Bible, Kirk. Yes. Can you off the top of your head, think of the number 40 in scriptures? Uh, Where do we see that? Moses in the desert, Elijah in the 40, desert. 40 years. Yep. 40 years of, of uh, Israel in the desert. Elijah. Yep. That's right. Elijah fasted for 40 days. Yes, he did. Yeah. 
40 days of rain and Noah's flood. That's right. Ezekiel, 40-day burden of, of the sin of Judah. Oh, right. There's a 40-day ritual period of purification for a woman postpartum. Yes. Yeah. Um, but but uh, this, as you pointed out, was um, also the fast of Moses and Elijah, uh, which uh, it's interesting that these are the prophets that we talked about last week, the transfiguration, but, um, you know, specifically Moses. And as we think of Jesus and, and Lent um, and Jesus and, and this reading kicking off Lent for us, we should never draw a parallel to us in our performance in our fasting. Correct. This is very important. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it would be easy for us to uh, liken our success or failure or our performance in this uh, and, and to, to draw silly conclusions there where um, I have come to say this frequently at the church I am pastor of. I say, Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And in Jesus um, and his resisting of temptation, um, this is something that he performed for us. Just as we look at Good Friday and Jesus dying for us, that Jesus also lived for us. And so in Adam's fall, Kirk, in Adam's temptation in the garden, where Adam failed, the new Adam, Jesus Christ, succeeded. And that was for our sake, and that is counted as ours. So as, as, as we are fasting, and as we are tempted, and as we face trials, and we have true human weakness, um, if we fail in, in our, uh, when we are faced with temptation, Kirk, this is not um, something that we should heap used to heap condemnation on our head, Kirk. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Um, but this is Christ's victory for us. Mm-hmm. For us. So for us is, is something that, that we talk about a lot during Holy Week, but we should remember this all year long, that Jesus did this for us. And so uh, it's, Kirk, it's fun to uh, do this journey week by week, year by year with you but also with our listeners. So they get to kind of hear what God's doing kind of in my mind and in my heart. Um, and hopefully the two aren't too far apart that, that the things that are that God's doing in my mind translate to my heart and change, change my life. Right. Um, this uh, Lex Arandi, Lex Credendi, Lex Vivendi. Um, the way that we pray impacts what we believe, which impacts how we live. And so uh, Kirk, I've, I've been, really caught um, by um, how our fathers in the faith, our fathers and mothers really did look at, at um, typology and numbers and things like that. So, it, I mean, it's, it's worth looking back at these um, 40 numbers um, and to, to think about Jesus and uh, what he does for us. And Kirk, I know that you have a lot to say about the three temptations, um, uh, certainly oh, church fathers, uh, <laughs> talked about those, those temptations, um, uh, th- these temptations for appetite, boasting and ambition, um, right. Which Ambrose, uh, connected with, uh, Luke 14, I'm sorry, Bede did, um, with Luke 14, where there's a wedding feast and there are three different reasons people have for not coming. Like I've got a thing, you know, <laughs> it's like, I've got to sell some land or, you know, whatever. And so, so they, they, they go and invite all the unworthy recipients to the, to, to the feasts. Um, and so Bede uh, looks at that um, as a significance thing, this lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes and the pride of life. But Kirk, mm-hmm. what I mean, when, when I talk about your, your um, read of the typology of these temptations, I just remember from last week, you talking about this, that, that um, the temptations of, of these three temptations are uh, the world, the, the flesh and the devil. And that, that we what? have, yeah. And well, I mean, those are the th- those are baptism things, right? Um, I, I don't, yeah, I suppose it is. It's, it's worship you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So um, th- that Jesus gives us um, things to help us in these temptations, Kirk. And could you repeat those for us? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, the first temptation that you see here is um, he's hungry, right? <laughs> um, I mean, that's the flesh, right? And so, I mean, this is, this is certainly a temptation that, that, that we share in, in our Lenten fasts. Um, and uh, and our, uh, as you and I discussed a little in preparatory remarks, our um, weapon that our Lord gives us and prefigures for us, prepares for us, 
in, in, in our battle um, against the flesh. Um, well, let, let's back up, right? So if, okay. <laughs> we view, if we view Lent as a time to genuinely, um, more intensely than always, like we should always be engaged. I don't mean this in a, in a, a certain hyper-charismatic way, but we should always be engaged in spiritual warfare, right? Like sure. we are in the army, <laughs> the army of the Lord, and, and there are powers and principalities that are arrayed against us. So, um, in that way, um, we're always in, um, we're always vigilant, right? Yeah. Yeah. We're always vigilant. But, but if, if you and I have talked about this, right. If every Sunday is Easter Sunday, then it's never actually Easter. Right. (laughs) And so Lent is a time where we, um, because we are, are sinful creatures whose focus wanes, um, for six weeks in particular, we decide to go into the desert of our hearts and to go do some real spiritual warfare. Um, but also, really Kirk, do battle. Yes, go ahead. I'm sorry. Finish your phrase. I do not mean to interrupt. <laughs> so, so we see the first temptation that Jesus has. No, okay, is, okay, okay, okay. Ahead. Then I will interrupt because you're moving interrupt. on. I thought you. Were, I didn't want to to interrupt your particular thought. Um, because I, I want to say this: that like Satan, the devil, comes to him at a very particular time, yes. Kirk. Well, when I'm is it? Talk about that. It's when he's vulnerable, right? Yes. It's when he's hungry. And so, yes. Okay. So that's what you're talking about. Like when, when, during Lent, when we are fasting, we are particularly vulnerable to these things. And so like that, you're right. We ought to be especially vigilant during this time. I'm sorry. I did not, you know, you were going to say that. No, no, that is, that is precisely the point I was going to make. And you probably made it better than, than me. Um, so our weapon that our Lord shows us, um, is against the flesh against the flesh is fasting now it's interesting as you just said that fasting brings on the temptation right and so in doing so we are actually we are alongside our lord who strengthens us right he doesn't does not does not lead us helpless um and without these periods of fasting in our life um i think we're probably less vigilant um in the way that our flesh what do I mean by our flesh? I mean our desires, right? The way that our, 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 our bodily desires really shape and form our actions, our mind, our souls in many ways. The way we reach for our cell phone when we're kind of lonely or have some downtime or in source of comfort. Um, the way we just kind of, you know, maybe get home from a hard day of work and kind of open up like a package of chocolate or whatever. Um, yeah, our flesh really, really does kind of shape our desires. And so this is a chance to, um, to go to war against them. Now, of course, as you said, fasting itself brings on that temptation. And so this is, this is the time to bring that to the Lord in prayer. Um, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right with that. Um, and I don't know if that was exactly the point you're going to make, but that's something I've thought about. Um, and we see the second temptation, right? If you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. Um, and, uh, and, and that is, I think that maps on well to, um, uh, we have the, the two other temptations, right? The world and the devil, um, that is, uh, um, let's see here. What do we have? Well, that's the third temptation. It. That's the third. Yep. That's why I skipped it. Uh, to you, I will give all authority, right? So we see here that the world is, um, or, I'm sorry, the devil kind of is tempting Jesus. And he says, it is written, you shall, uh, you shall worship the Lord, your God and him only you shall serve. And then finally he sets him on the pinnacle of the temple and says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, he will command his angels. So we see there as well. Um, we see that the devil is a temptation and the world, right. Is a temptation as well. And, um, and what are our weapons against the devil in the world, Kirk? Prayer <laughs> and charity. Right. So in case we, we desire um, stuff too much, right. Whether it's power or whether it's um, nice things um, it's, it's charity that, uh, that gives us inoculates us, I guess, against um, uh, the devil's temptation. And, and then, and then prayer is our, is our, uh, is our weapon against the devil. And you can see that um, the way that Jesus uses it. Right. Um, you uh, you shall worship the Lord your God and Him only. Right? We pray only to God. He is our only source of consolation. It is to Him that we run. So yeah, I don't I don't know if that was that was what you're referring to, Christopher. But I think this is a, a remarkable passage in showing yeah. us just how and to. 
I just remember in years past that you you pointed to a particular resource that that kind of articulated this. And I just remember finding that to be powerful, that we are not left without recourse or weapons against these temptations. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Um, I also uh, have, you kind of brought it up here. Um, I've been put into mind that, um, that these things aren't just fasting, prayer, and charity. These things aren't just our weapons against um, the world, the flesh, and the devil, you know, as we go to war against our, our sins um, during Lent, but, but they also do bring them on, right? Um, uh, and he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and he was afterwards hungered, right? Um, Jesus is hungered and is vulnerable because of this. Um, and uh, and, and this, these aren't my words. I'm looking at a sermon that John Henry Newman wrote um, on Lent, on this first Sunday of Lent. Mm. And, uh, and he says, he writes, um, we fast by way of penitence and in order to subdue the flesh. Our Savior had no need of fasting for either purpose. His fasting was unlike ours, and in its intensity, so in its object. And yet, when we begin to fast, his pattern is set before us, and we continue the time of fasting till in the number of days we have equaled his. Um, and there is good reason for us. In truth, we must do nothing except with him in our eye. Um, he, he, writes, um, he writes that, and I'm sorry, I have the wrong... Uh, here it is. Even in our penitential exercise, when we could least have hoped to find a pattern in him, Christ has gone before us to sanctify them to us. He has blessed fasting as a means of grace in that he has fasted, and fasting is only acceptable when it is done for his sake. Penitence is mere formality or mere remorse unless done in love. If we fast without uniting ourselves in heart to Christ, imitating him and praying that he would make our fasting his own and associate it with his own and communicate to it the virtue of his own so that we may be in him and he in us, we fast in vain, right? And, um, and he writes as well, and forgive me, I had it highlighted and I've lost it, um, that, that, that fasting, as we read here in his temptation, is unique in that it brings on the temptation. And so we must link our fasting with his unless, um, unless it ends up being just, um, just a work. <laughs> and then in that case, we can't do war against um, sin, flesh, and the devil. So, Yeah. You last week, Christopher, um, noticed a, an interesting Lucan distinctive um, in the Transfiguration, um, and we run into the temptation of Jesus every year. Last year in Matthew, the year before in Mar, last year in Mark, the year before in Matthew. Um, do you see any in, anything different that Luke has to offer here? So I, I guess I pointed out uh, the difference that we see in in mark where, where mark it's almost very action oriented like this almost violent casting out um it's the same word that's used in, in the casting out of an evil spirit how the holy spirit cast him out um into the wilderness where we're here um it's just being led uh so so that that wouldn't be a lucan distinctive that's pointing out a markin distinctive yeah uh, kirk i i'm not sure that i uh remember catching a uh, lucan distinctive here are you asking uh, a leading question, hoping that I will um, answer in a way that you've noticed? Oh, no, I'm, I asked out of genuine curiosity. Okay. Yeah. Um, it, Luke, Luke often has um, uh, additional observations, um, whether it's the, the, the penitent thief or, or whatever, the interesting extra tidbits. I think last week it, it was um, the what, what the details uh, of the conversation, the, the, what they were talking about, right? That they yeah. were talking about his departure. Right, his mm -hmm. exodus, and and not to go back to last week, but that's interesting, right? That Moses would talk to someone else about an exodus. <laughs> right. Um, again, you and I have talked about how the exodus is is really a prefiguring of the events of Holy Week. Um, yes. But yeah, no, if it, and that's okay if you if if there there aren't necessarily any Lucan distinctives here, that's okay as well. And then we can wrap it up and and move on to our uh, our, our our culture segment today. But but do you have any other thoughts? Well, 
I mean, a, a time of fasting um, is a time of emptiness. And if we were to think about the exact opposite of that, we would think of something quite gilded and filled with um, all sorts of good things, at least for some, Kirk. Which nah. is a transition into our culture segment. Kirk, today yes. we are talking about Julian Fellow's latest show, The Gilded Age, available on HBO Max. New episodes drop on Mondays, right, Kirk? Or is it? Tuesday? Yes, Mondays. Yep. On Mondays, this is a limited miniseries, I believe, uh, of just one season, nine episodes. Is that correct, Kirk? That sounds right to me. Oh, uh, actually, no. Um, instant correction. <laughs> It was renewed for a second season. Somebody Yay! told me. Somebody told me that uh, it, it was just a miniseries, but we're going to get a second season. So, um, the Gilded Age is is. So, for the, for those of you who don't know J Julian Fellows, he is the creator of Downton Abbey, and this is very similar. Kirk, you've probably watched several Julian Fellows shows. I've I only seen um, Doctor Thorne um, on Amazon. Doctor Thorne was really good, by the way. Yep. Yep. Based uh, on a Trollope novel. And and uh, which yeah, everyone should. Did you see Belgravia? I did not. Is that that did not do as well? I thought it was interesting. I liked it. That was Julian Fellows. That came out twenty twenty. Um, and I don't. I'd have to look and see if that was HBO as well. But yeah. But the, so the Gilded Age is very similar uh, in that we have the upstairs downstairs vibe of mm -hmm. we have uh, the um, prosperous residents of of uh, Park Avenue in New York City in the 1880s. Uh, and we also have uh, the downstairs servants and um, we get views of both and the interaction of both. Uh, both series um Downton Abbey and the Gilded Age are very concerned with class. Um, of course, uh, as we move across the ocean to America, uh, the addition of race is uh, is introduced as well. Um, but but uh, the the class thing, Kirk. Here, I am sure you are very interested by this this collision of old money mm -hmm. and new money. And although uh, Kirk we uh, talk a lot about works righteousness on this show. Um, the sort of public morality that is promoted here uh, as exemplified in one particular resident of New York city who is very wealthy, but is a, a an outcast due to uh, it sort of immoral living that is public uh, in which uh, many of these other people live uh, immorally in their private lives um, the, the, the public nature of her sin uh, means that she can never be part of polite society. And so the central uh, tension uh, exists as Carrie Coon, the actress um, pl who plays, I don't know her, uh, what's her family name? Uh, Bertha, Bertha Russell. Russell. Yep. Bertha and George Russell are, are new money. Um, uh, these uh, railroad and industrial barons um, who uh, collide with old money of of um, the Russells. Um, I'm sorry, not the Russells. What's uh, the Van Brooks? Sorry, the Van Rines. Van Rines. Thank you. Which oh I think gosh. that Dutch name is really important, right? Because like, sure, they're not just an old New York family. They're a New Amsterdam family, right? Like they go way back. Right. Um, and that actually really mattered. Um, that's that that's that's a really important tell. Like the Roosevelt's, that's a maybe, you know, your ears no longer recognize that that's a Dutch name, but it was. Um, and and the and the, the there's a handful of Dutch families that really did run New York up until about um, the 1890s, World War One, up, up through World War One. Yeah. But go ahead. 
And Kirk, one thing that I've complained about in the past regarding Julian Fellows is, is how he, he um, treats the viewer as if we're stupid and hits you over the head and over explains things. But sometimes it's really necessary because in our, in today's world where, where new money means everything, uh, where um, in fact, an influencer, like a person with no particular talent um, it can gather millions of subscribers on Instagram and instantly become wealth, one of the wealthiest people um, while old money uh, means very little socially. Um, and, the, and, and because class isn't as significant anymore. Um, the, the, the new wealthy uh, in America are not necessarily excluded um, from many things that, because it's the adulation of the masses in, um, in kind of modern mass media markets that, that, um, that matters to many people. And that's that's painting with a broad brush. But, yeah, um, but it, it it makes this plot interesting today. In that, like, this is an unfamiliar idea. This idea of old and new money colliding, and it being more difficult for the Russells, who are far more wealthy than the Van Rines, to um, to even be peers. Um, yeah, and so uh, Kirk. Uh, the uh, w- one of the interesting uh, aspects of the show is uh, one of the main characters uh, is played by the daughter of Meryl Streep, whose name is Louisa Jacobson, plays young Marion Brooke, who is that's uh, a- the daughter of Meryl Streep. Oh, Kirk, you'll never be able to unsee it when oh. you look at her face now. <laughs> She's <laughs> like, oh, lovely. my gosh, that's the daughter of yeah. and you won't be able to look at her without picturing Meryl Streep anymore. Um, uh in her smile and everything it's, it's Meryl Streep through and through, but, uh, and I think is her first acting credit. Uh, I think, wow. Um, but, but she arrives in New York she's um, and she's great. Yeah. Uh, her, her dad having just died and her dad uh, is an interesting character, although he doesn't appear in the show, a Kirk, a character who is seen as, as like a spendthrift as, as a, a bit of an adventurer, which is the kiss of death from aunt Van Ryn from, right. uh, from Ada Van Ryn, Ada, Agnes, Agnes Van Ryn, um, who Kirk is a wonderful character who is, who seems very rigid but is rigid for a reason yep. right like yep. there's love behind her rigidness so mm-hmm. I, i've said a lot could, could could you um expand a bit on that in both her caution with her sister and with her uh niece yeah and um and and in the beautiful character that she is in in yeah. uh, it's interesting that that she has very strict rules uh, because she doesn't want to marry off her sister or her niece to just anybody because she wants them to be cared for but it can be seen as as very uh uncaring um and yet she takes in and cares for and uh a young black woman uh and and is is willing to flout any um i any ideas of of old conventions of racism in, uh in in embracing her Kurt, which is a beautiful thing yes i agree yeah so to to backfill a little bit i think the central conflict um, that is an enormous vein to mine um, of, of kind of human jealousy and desire and ambition is this. Um, one, uh, one cast of characters, kind of on one side, the old money, has all the, uh, all the social, uh, all capital. the doors open to them, right? All the social capital. Yeah. Um, but doesn't actually have all the money. Right. Um, so like we might say they're property rich, money poor, right? Yeah. yeah. And they've got all the best neighborhoods. Um, and 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 the doors open to the best, you know, box seats and at that's, the Academy of Arts. And that's, and that's Agnes Van Ryn. And mm-hmm. uh what's interesting about that is as long as her sister and her niece live with her, they are provided for. Yeah, but there's actually no money to go to them. Because yep. she has a son of her own and everything that she has when she dies goes to him. Yep. Yep. And then, and then you have another cast of characters um, and, and this is called the Gilded Age because um, there was an enormous explosion of industry and wealth in the United States in the 1880s and 1890s um, that, that, that created a class of people that had so much money um, that, that uh, it wasn't clear what to do with it other than build 
kind of <laughs> European uh, monarch style castles, um, which is kind of what the Russells live in, right? Uh, this yeah. neo-Rococo um, gaudy monstrosity. Like Christopher, I mean, their house yeah. is just so <laughs> horrific to me. I mean, I like... I, I, I don't hate everything that's not modern. That's not what it is. I don't necessarily even like modernism. I sort of have a soft spot for mid-century modern. Um, but 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 it is so neo-Rococo, um, and I think intentionally so, that I like... It's gaudy and... Yeah, it's gaudy. So in, Kirk, in, in, in this, case, is, this isn't a spoiler, but um, it, it's a mild spoiler, but it, it won't ruin anything. Um, in, in the episode that you have not watched, Agnes... Uh, almost accidentally enters the Russell's home and she just stops and stares. I think cause she is in awe. She's, you know, looked from the outside and wondered what, it, what it's like inside, but, but it wasn't like, it wasn't discussed. It was like, Holy cow, this is way nicer than my house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. 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 So uh, the, and yet, the, Agnes has all the status. Yeah. So the lady, you wanted to talk a little bit about um, Agnes Van Ryn. Um, no, I want to talk about whatever you yeah. want to talk about. Okay, so she, you, you probably have seen her everywhere. If you've, if you've watched this, um, she, her, if you just go to IMDb and see her credits, you'll be like, she has a long history in TV. Um, she's been in her a name bunch is of Christine Baranski. Christine Baranski. I could right. not identify what else she's in, but you'd, you'd recognize her. Yeah. She often plays like villains in made for TV movies and plays them really well. Um, so, that's that's kind of how I would describe her, like how the Grinch stole Christmas. She she like plays like a like a villain in that. In any case, let's talk about Agnes Van Ryn. Yeah, so she um she's a gatekeeper. She functions there. There are three women that function as gatekeepers, um, to the main gate gatekeeper, which is Mrs. Astor, and that's based on real life. Um, uh, what was it was it Mary Astor? Uh, Carrie Astor, I forget. In any case, there was there was a, a, an Astor of the Astor family that played gatekeeper to the summer getaways in Rhode Island at Newport News. They really kind of not controlled Newport the News, social. Newport, Newport. I'm sorry, they controlled the yeah Newport News in Virginia, Newport, uh, Rhode Island. They controlled kind of the social circle of the upper echelon in New York. Um, and there are three gatekeepers to her, and Agnes Van Ryn is one of them. And, 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 and so sometimes we see her wearing that gatekeeper hat and it seems like she's being just absolutely cruel, for example, in keeping the Russells out, right? Keeping the new money, the riffraff out, people who haven't paid their dues, so to speak, literally and metaphorically. Um, uh, but you also, as you alluded to, you see her um, playing this more, uh, you realize that there's a reason that she became how she became in that uh, she was in a, in a brutal and loveless marriage. Um, and, and, and her husband died and left her a lot of money and gave her this, this Dutch name, right? This great Dutch name that opens all the doors in New York. Um, and yet um, wants, to, wants to make sure that her niece, uh, Miss Brooke, doesn't come to ruin because her brother almost trashed the entire Brooke. Well, did in tra trash the entire Brooke inheritance, right? Yeah. And yeah. forced Agnes yes. To, yes. Um, into this lovely marriage to re-solidify the family finances. Loveless marriage, yes. Yes, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, which left behind one son, a, a, a deliciously cynical and sybaritic <laughs> young Van Ryn, who I'm interested to see kind of what Julian Fellows has in mind for him. Uh, he's, I, I, don't, I don't have the actor's name in front of me, Christopher, but he, he's a delicious, uh, Blake Ritson <laughs> plays just a delicious kind of, isn't there like a like an old saying about how 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 families decline, right? One generation makes all the money. Um, the Senate, second generation is just kind of worthlessly managing it. And then the third generation like just <laughs> trashes it and like spends it all. Like he he looks to That'd be, be like him. Yeah. deliciously that third generation. <laughs> like yes. he usually makes like really effete cynical comments after like taking a long drag and a, a cigarello, right? And like, kind of makes kind of witchy comments about people across the room socially, right? He's kind of a delicious character. Julian Fellows always seems to have that kind of character. Um, Thomas, uh, the butler, was sort of that that sort of character, I think. Although Kirk, uh, a friend of mine, argues that Thomas has the best arc in Downton Abbey. Oh, he does. And, and I, I, is, I don't am, think am I, I can that disagree. Friend of yours? 
<laughs> no, no, I, I can't. I can't disagree. He is the yeah. best arc. It, it it takes a while to get there, but in the end, it's beautiful. Um, his redemption is is wonderful. Another character I'm really interested in, in is uh, Dorothy Scott. Uh, no, no, not Dorothy Scott. Peggy Scott, um, the yes. secretary. And sure. you wanted to. You mentioned uh, Agnes's enlightened uh, racial views. I yeah. think this is really important as well. There were yeah. um, New England and New York Republicans who um, really were kind of radicalized, well, abolitionists, right? Um, yep. And made, made, a, made a point uh, in the face of prevailing cultural trends to, to kind of um, put it in people's faces that, uh, that, 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 that slaves and freed blacks were every bit the equal. Right, um, yeah. And, and, and so we have a way of viewing uh, the American past that everyone else before us were racial bigots and we're right, very right. enlightened, forgetting what 19th century uh, Northern Republicanism was. Um, and especially amongst um, the wealthy and the um, kind of the charity class that really did believe that it was their job with their, with their inherited money to make uh, America a, a better place racially. And so I love that you have this Agnes Van Ryan character who, who would not deign to visit important. her neighbor's house? Yes, um, for yes. you know her neighbor who is who is wealthy unbelievably wealthy, <laughs> um, and and throws lavish parties hoping to get Agnes Van Ryan to show up, and yet would um, befriend um, a, a young black woman because that's because the right thing. Absolutely, to do. the right thing to do, and yeah. it's not patronizing. It's not like it's it's just like you are my equal. Like my my yeah. father died for this. Um, then, yeah. do you remember she alludes to like kind of the officer class, mm. like. This is this is what the war was for. <laughs> uh, do you remember that there is one conversation saying like this is why Dad fought, <laughs> like yeah. like like I'm not putting up with any of this crap. Like Peggy Peggy's my secretary. She's my friend. She's like every bit the literary equal of anyone. Like wants to see your stories published. Is interested in advocating for a career. Um, yeah, I also Christopher I love in the uh, the previous episode um, when when uh, you do see a patronizing racial attitude. Uh, right. When Miss Brooke thinks she's going to help um, Peggy's family by bringing mm-hmm. an old pair of shoes and, and realizes like, oh, man, I stepped in it when she is um, when she realizes that in Brooklyn, right, she thinks he's slumming in Brooklyn. Right. And she goes to to a black neighborhood in Brooklyn and realizes, wait, they have servants, too. Like yeah. they dress for tea, too. Like it never occurred to her that this black family would have money and have, you know, servants downstairs as well. And, and I'm trying to think of what, of what. And is literary... really ashamed, properly ashamed. Yeah. Oh yeah. When I'm, she I'm, assumes I'm... poverty because Peggy's black. Right. I'm trying to think of what literary type this is. If, if it's a Christ figure, like she is so naive and untainted by the world, Kirk. Yeah. Um, the Holy Miss... fool. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Miss, Miss Brooke. Um, Miss Peggy, Peggy yeah. Brooke. Is that her name? Mm-hmm. No. Is it? No. Oh, why can't I remember? I'm not remembering either. Marian, uh, Marian Brooke. Marian. I'm sorry, Marian. Marian Brooke. Uh, who, who um is is in her naivete to the ways of the world is sort of the conscience of the show. Oh yes, right? that is wise. Yep. Yeah, it, where, where she asks questions that nobody asks, like why is it this way? Why must it be this way? Why why um would we not? Why would this charity? not take the money of this person who wants to give well it's because she's a bad person she's a very um there's a character who had this all she was known for was her public sin um chamberlain uh, sylvia chamberlain yeah played by do you know who that is uh well the the actress is genie triple horn who, Which in the nineties, she she's so right. old now. Right. Yeah. In the nineties, she was like a like a young female lead. I, she was right. A, yeah. She she was in um was she in Waterworld? Yeah, she was in Waterworld. Yeah. And uh, no, I'm thinking of someone else. I was that's thinking the of only Julia, thing that's coming to mind. Of, I don't have. I was thinking of Julia Ormond. Um. Uh. But uh, yeah, she was in you know the firm and and oh Mickey that's Blue right Eyes. yes she she was she's the young instinct. um yeah. uh the young brunette uh, beauty. Um, but and now she was, she's playing this old like spinster. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. But, yeah, but so, she um, has serious money and like, right. Miss Marion Brooke is not to be seen with her, not to accept any gifts from her, not go shopping, not say hi to her, yada, yada, yada. And like, it, she just can't under, yeah, that, that scene where she meets up with her yeah. and um, 
is is a lovely scene yeah 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 it is and and so for 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 this and and the many reasons we've uh listed um this is a strong recommendation from from both of us i think it's it's a it's a very good show uh it's uh it has a, a beauty not, not only on screen of of the gilded age which julian fellows is very good at but th- but there's just a beauty in uh, the, these characters, the kind of naive mm-hmm. um, young Miss Brooke, it, yeah. the, the wisdom of the the older Mrs. Van, Agnes Van Rhyne, um, the I mean, it'll Kirk, it'll be interesting um, to see what the Russells are capable of. These people who who don't actually seem to be bad people, um, and yet they're they're so ambitious. I wonder if. Um, if they're going to make some bad choices for the sake of ambition. Yeah. So our time is running short. Can I just make a couple of observations in, in no particular order, please. We haven't talked at all about Cynthia Nixon as, as Ada Brooke, uh, Agnes's sister. This is another example of like uh, how, how quickly time flies. Like she looks old (laughs) and I think she's intended to look old, but she looks old. She's of course from sex in the city. Um, Nathan Lane as Ward McAllister. I love him uh, in as everything. As like the delicious Kirk. Southerner. Oh my gosh, he is just the best. He is, he is magnificent. He just sparkles. The twinkle in his eye is the best. Just the best. Um, also, uh, it'll come to me if it, if, if, if it comes to me or it won't. Um, do you have any final thoughts? I, I had one, but it's gone. Was it on, on actors or? Uh, I think it was on a, on a certain arc. But that's fine. Okay, that's fine. Should okay, have did it, it have to do with the young man that uh, Marion Brooke is interested in? A young, um, ambitious man who uh, is is a lawyer, but uh, who's who's kind of climbing in society, but is 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 not good enough for her aunt. And and um, she says, "I don't understand why I have nothing. Like I've oh, he's not after no. me for my money because I I have yeah. nothing. No, un- un- unrelated to that." Okay. Though that is an interesting arc, and I wonder where it's going. If he'll have some some secret or or some he's compromising himself some way, in some way because he's climbing so fast. Like how can he seems too pure, doesn't he? Yep. Um. No. No. It's this. I thought everything everything in the first three or four episodes made it look like the Russells were were Jewish, Uh, Mm. and that was uh, like at one point they were referred to as members of a different tribe. Um, and that just evidently means uh, new new money because um, it comes yeah. out later. There's an episode. Uh, there's a reference to Mrs. Russell like picking potatoes back in Carrie or her mother. So she's okay. Irish. So she's Irish. So whatever. But I thought that that was going to be an interesting, maybe explore the the, the subtle or more overt anti-Semitism hmm. of uh, 19th century uh, New York. But but twas not to be. Twas not to be. It, it was just enough that that she wasn't wealthy last generation. That right. She isn't worthy <laughs> now. Yeah. Didn't it seem like they were kind of being almost set up um, as as maybe like uh, they were bankers. He's kind of um, perceived as being cutthroat and cutting corners. Like it seemed like there were there were several stereotypes there at play. Perhaps. Perhaps. But, but yeah, no one wanted to. That could have them. been interesting, but I'm, I'm kind of relieved that it wasn't explored. I mean, I think. And plus that's prior to the, it, it would be ahistorical because um, right, right. that's not when the Jewish immigration was the wave. The wave came right, I think around 1900, between about 1900, 1930. I think that's when, and it was a massive wave, but yeah. any final thoughts? Let's close in prayer. See it, see it, watch it, watch it. It's great. Yeah. And maybe, maybe we'll uh, catch up a little bit at the end of the season. Absolutely. We'll see. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit, let us pray. Almighty God, whose blessed son was led by the spirit to be tempted by Satan. Come quickly to help us who are assaulted by many temptations. And as you know, the weaknesses of each of us, let each one find you mighty to save. Through Jesus Christ, your son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen. Next week, Kirk. Next week.